Good morning. My name is Amelia Schultz, and today we're going to be reading from 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 to 27. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I am Pastor Jeff, and it's uh, great to see all of you here today in worship. Uh, I do need to start today on a little bit of a serious note, it's not often that I need to stand up here and correct something that we have said publicly, but today I need to confess to you that Joey was wrong. <laughs> Last week, Joey said that no one gets to the Olympics without discipline and hard work and sacrifice and, and dedication. And then Kim Urich sent us this story from NBC. When you tune to the Olympics, you usually expect to catch a glimpse of world-class athletes performing at the peak of uh, accomplishment, uh, even if it's in sports that you didn't know existed, you know, like curling or biathlon. But if you turn into the qualifying portion of the women's uh, half-pipe freestyle skiing, you got an odd surprise uh, if you saw skier Elizabeth Sweeney. Uh, as she took her qualifying runs, it became clear that Sweeney was miles away from being an elite athlete. Her qualifying runs, NBC said, were so mind-numbingly average that it was almost captivating, as were the announcer's attempts to make it interesting. 24th in the World Cup, 13th in the half-pipe at Secret Garden earlier in the year. What can she deliver on here in Pyeongchang? Liz Sweeney dropping in trying to get into this right wall for a nice, just getting up to the top of the wall, going for these grabs, the safety grab you'll see there, and then opting for another, just cruising up to the top of the wall, showing the judges she can make it down this half pipe clean. Going for the alley-oop spin down at the bottom, onto the left, and then a nice cruise 360 to switch, trying to show that she has a little style down at the bottom. Uh, now, now, I don't want to be too hard because I could not have done what she did. 
but you notice there's like no roar of applause, and the announcers are trying to, Wes, trying to show she's got a little bit of style there. How does a skier that average get to the Olympics? Well, there's a backstory. Uh, Sweeney has been freestyle skiing for a few years, and knowing that she would never have a chance to make the very competitive U.S. Olympic team, she decided instead to ski for Hungary, where her grandparents were born. So, you know, people do that. that that's allowed. Uh, but skiing for Hungary gave her the ability to qualify for the Olympics uh, in this way. There are only 24 slots for freestyle women skiers in this event, and each country can only send for athletes to the competition. And there aren't a lot of women freestyle skiers yet. It's still a relatively new competitive sport. So Sweeney went to all the qualifying competitions uh, and slowly built up enough points to qualify simply by not falling down in, in the qualifiers. So as you'd imagine, there were probably a lot of really qualified athletes who were sitting at home watching this, more than a little frustrated, to see this woman kind of make a mockery of the process and get a slot in the Olympics through technicalities instead of training. And if you look at it another way, though, NBC says Sweeney is kind of a success. She had the brains and the determination to find a way to make it to the Olympics. She strategized and she executed. Ultimately, NBC said she was able to achieve the real American dream. Scamming the system to achieve your life goals while doing the bare minimum to get there. <laughs> is that the American dream? Maybe it is. For some people, I mean, Sweeney dedicated herself in a way to achieving her dream, and she invested time and, and money to make it happen, right? And there's certainly nothing wrong with wanting to be an Olympic athlete. We usually celebrate that. But we celebrate it because of the determination and the sacrifice and the discipline that's required to get there. Something in Sweeney, something in our culture, apparently told her that fulfilling her heart's desire was the most important thing. That that was more important than honoring the country she was representing, honoring the other athletes, then it was more important than respecting others and the process and what the games are supposed to be about. Elizabeth Sweeney was shaped in certain ways. She internalized certain messages and values, and it came out in her actions. But that's true for all of us, isn't it? We're all being formed in all kinds of ways by all kinds of messages. The world around us definitely has messages and it's trying to shape us in certain ways and our hearts are certainly telling us what to value and and shaping our lives in certain ways so how do i know what i really love what kind of person am i becoming through the choices and the habits in my life a wise person once said you can always find out what people really believe. It's easy. Just ignore what they say and watch what they do. If I love compassion, that's going to show up in my life, isn't it? If I love generosity, it's going to show up in my bank account. If I love encouragement, that's going to show up in how I speak and, and in how I treat people. If I love being right, if I love winning arguments, if I love getting in the last word, if I love comfort and 
pleasing myself, if I love control, if I love making sure that things always go the way that I think they need to go, that's going to show up in my life too. The passage that we're looking at today in 1 Corinthians 9 encourages us to really examine, to think through how our habits and our choices shape us and demonstrate what we really believe. Now, we're in the second, uh, second movement of a three-part series uh, looking at our vision for the kind of disciples that we think God is calling us to be and to make here at Faith Church. We started by looking at this image Peter gives of us as resident aliens. That is, we are living here in this world as citizens of another kingdom. And we reflect its values and, and its priorities in our lives. And, and we've said we want to be informed, winsome ambassadors of Jesus Christ to our culture. And so we spent the first five weeks trying to understand our culture, trying to understand the world that we live in. And now we're looking at how we are shaped as ambassadors. And that to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ, we need goals in front of us. We need structure. We need a plan for how we will live as ambassadors. So we take on habits or disciplines that shape us towards that goal. Now, many of us don't think about training our hearts like we think about training our bodies, but the truth is we are training them, we are shaping them every day. And the Apostle Paul tells us that, that our whole lives, in fact, are a kind of training of a sort. Everything that we do is shaping our hearts either towards God or away from him. That's sobering. But Paul's words also give us hope because when our hearts are conditioned to live in God's presence, to, to obey his word, to be shaped by his will, we experience joy and contentment and peace and, and purpose and fulfillment. So if you haven't already, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And uh, in that black ESV Bible in the seat in front of you, it's on page 1137. The first thing that Paul wants us to understand is that Christ has set us free. We are free in Christ. Now, there are many things in life that we don't have control over. Things in our circumstances, things in our history, maybe even things about our bodies that, that we don't get to choose. But we do get to make choices about what we will do in those circumstances and how we will live our lives. And in this first part of the chapter that, that we didn't read, the background is Paul is kind of defending his, his rights as a missionary, as an apostle, to earn a living from the people that he's caring for and serving. And all the pastors in the congregation said, amen. But Paul says, I'm not taking advantage of that right because I didn't want to be under obligation to anyone. I have that freedom, but I haven't exercised it. And, and then he goes on in verse 19 to say, I am free from all. I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became like a Jew in order to win the Jews. In order to those under the law, I became like one under the law, even though I'm not really under the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Now, Think about what Paul is saying here and kind of what's implicit in what he has not chosen to do with his freedom. Because you see, I could use my freedom to be a slave to myself. 
to only care about my desires, my goals, my interests, my likes. It's kind of a way of saying, you know, I don't really care about you. I care about me, and this is me, so love me for who I am, and I don't care what you do with that, but I'm a slave to no one because I am the only one that matters to me. At the other extreme, I could become a slave to other people for my sake. That is, I, I want people's approval. I want to go along with the crowd. I never want to stand out. I never want to be different. I, I never want to run the risk of being rejected or alone. So I will conform myself to whatever anyone else thinks is good. I become a slave to you for the sake of me so that you will build me up and, and you will give me security and, and confidence and, and identity. And Paul says, no, no, I, I don't do either of those things. I'm not using my freedom to serve myself. I'm not using my freedom to become a slave to others. I'm using my freedom to serve and love people in order to point them to the all-surpassing glory of knowing God through Jesus Christ. Do you see how Paul's goals are reflected in the choices that he makes with his life, how he uses his freedom? Christ has set me free, and I'm going to use that freedom out of love for God and out of love for people in a way that would serve them and their ultimate good. It's a reflection of a heart that loves God and loves the gospel and loves people who are far from him. When I was an associate pastor at First Free in St. Louis, Gene Moniz was our pastor of counseling and congregational care. Uh, I would notice, uh, while I was sitting at my desk eating, you know, something probably not very healthy for me for lunch, that Gene was out running. He would, he would go change, he'd put on shorts and a t-shirt, and he's running up and down these hills. In St. Louis, we have hills, actually. Um, there were these hills by our church, and he would be huffing and puffing and, you know, covered with sweat and, and breathing heavily, and, uh, and I could not understand why he would want to do this. Uh, so I, I caught Gene one day and I said, man, you must really love running. I see you out there. And he said, no, I hate running. Well, why do you run? I asked. And, and he explained to me, well, I run because I love softball, but I don't play on the church league because I want to reach people who are far from Jesus. So, so I play on the community league and to play softball well, I have to be in good shape and to earn the respect of the people that I'm playing with and trying to reach for Jesus, I need to be in shape. So I run because I love softball and I love people who don't know Jesus. Now, look at this. Gene wasn't willing to become a runner to reach runners. I mean, he was willing to become a runner in order to reach people who love softball and are far from Jesus. Look in verses 22 and 23. I have become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. I do it for the sake of the gospel. You and I have freedom in Christ to arrange our choices and our habits and, and our priorities and, and our lives to use our time and our energy in any one of a, a million kinds of ways. So what will determine how we use that freedom that God has given us. Paul says, I do everything that I'm doing for the sake of the gospel. In other words, I will take on habits that reflect my love for Jesus. 
that my life would be shaped around wanting more people to know his saving, rescuing love and the life and the forgiveness that he offers. What are the habits, the patterns of our lives demonstrate about what we really value? See, the habits of our lives shape our hearts. The the patterns, the things that I choose shape the kind of person that I'm becoming. But we get to choose. We get to choose what habits and priorities will shape us, whether that will be for God or for something else. And to be really free, to be authentically human, to be truly alive in Christ means taking on discipline that doesn't feel natural or normal at first. That's what Paul is getting at in the rest of this section. You see, starting in verse 24, don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Now, he's not saying here, you know, you're you're competing against other Christians, you know, to get to heaven. That's not the point. Run that you will win the prize. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. And they're willing to do it for a perishable crown. We're competing for an imperishable reward. So I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. I discipline my body. And I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Do you see what Paul is getting at here? Nobody... Nobody becomes more like Jesus by accident. Nobody sort of defaults their way into greater godliness. Nobody develops Christ-likeness simply by wanting it. Now, we have to want it. We have to desire it. But the desire isn't enough. Paul's saying we need determination and we need discipline. We take on habits that will shape our lives to grow, to look more like the Lord that we love because our lives will always look like what we love. And so real change only happens when we train ourselves. And Paul says in another letter along a similar lines that physical training has some value, but spiritual training is of eternal value. Every day we take Small, incremental steps to experience more of God, to follow him more closely, to grow with him throughout the day. Because that's where most of our spiritual growth happens. It happens in ordinary, everyday circumstances. It's not the conferences or the retreats or the the concerts that really change us. Now, now don't get me wrong. Those things are, are tremendously important and helpful. Amelia and I are scheduled to go to the conference. In fact, I was sitting here in first hour with Joey. I didn't know Bob was going to do the thing with the golf club. I said, man, I just registered a couple of days ago. I'm going to save 30 bucks. I want to go to the conference. I want to learn important insights that will help me and Amelia in our marriage. But what we experience at that conference is not going to change us. What is going to change our marriage is going home and remembering what we experienced and putting into practice what we learned. It would be awesome in in one way. There's a part of me that would love it if I could, you know, become more like Jesus simply by reading a book or listening to a podcast or putting a CD in the car or going to a conference or going to a retreat. That That would be easy, right? 
but it doesn't work that way. All it would take, you know, is, is a little money, right? And, and putting something on the calendar. But, but the good news is that it's not where the change happens because the change happens in ordinary, everyday choices that I make. And that's good news because it means growing to be more like Jesus is accessible to everyone. It's not a matter of money. It's not a matter of finding the right speaker or getting the right conference or, or getting the right group or whatever. It just takes time and disciplines and intention and perseverance. We grow mostly through what Christians for centuries have called the ordinary means of grace. Worship, prayer, and God's word. Habits that Jesus and his followers and, and the church for centuries have pointed us towards. Worshiping together in God's presence, soaking in his word, and calling out to him in prayer. Worship is practice. Prayer is practice. Reading God's word is practice. You know, experts tell us that it takes about 10,000 hours of practice to become proficient in a musical um, instrument. And I remember my mom was a piano major. I, I was, you know, probably about eight or ten years old, and, and she wanted me to learn piano and made me stick with it for about three years. But I wanted to go outside and play and throw a ball around and, you know, just be a normal boy, go hang out with my friends. So I didn't have the discipline to stick with it because I didn't love what she was trying to build into my life, and so I never learned to play piano, and I've regretted it to an extent. Worship, prayer, and the Word are practice that builds skills and habits and patterns in our lives. Eugene Peterson talks about this in his study of the book of Jonah called Under the Unpredictable Plant. And he talks about this idea of ascesis, a, a Greek word that's a root from which we get the term asceticism. But, but it's not about asceticism. He says ascesis is voluntary limitation. It is the spirituality what a training regimen is to an athlete. We need we need it. Otherwise, we are at the mercy of our glands or the weather in terms of whether we do anything. The reason we need ascesis is because we are under constant seduction to be like God. Ascesis is a calculated and deliberate interference with this God presumption. Spirituality, he says, requires context always. It requires boundaries and borders and limits, and structure. You know, in the story of Jonah, God appoints a fish to swallow Jonah. And when Jonah's in the belly of that fish, everything is stripped away. There's, there's nothing left. I mean, he has nothing else to fall on, nothing to distract him. He's there. And finally, in that place of limitation and confinement, he comes to his senses, and he calls out to God in prayer. We've all heard people share stories of the work that God has done in a good way in their life through limitation, through hardship, through grief, crisis, through loss. But in the ordinary course of things, God doesn't appoint a fish to swallow us, Peterson says. We have to find our own place. We have to carve out our own time. It's hard because however necessary we believe it to be, it doesn't feel necessary. On most days, there's going to be neither the pressure of pain nor the lure of ecstasy, and there will be plenty of other pressures and lures to do something else. And all God's people said, amen. 
The components for building our own limitations are simple enough. A closet and a clock, a sanctuary and silence. Anybody can manage it for a while. It's the dailiness of it that's difficult. Because what's really required is an imagination large enough to see all of life as the context for worship and prayer and walking in God's word. See, we come together in worship, for example, regularly because worship reorients our hearts. Worship reminds us of, of a God who is bigger than us, who is worthy of our worship, a God who can be trusted even in the hard things. Worship is important because it, it builds patterns of praise and lament and confession and thanksgiving and humility into our hearts. And we take that out into every place that we're going to go throughout the week. And we learn how to worship there too. We need the discipline of praying regularly because prayer reminds us that God is God and we are not. How often am I prayerless because I don't even think that I need God in this circumstance. I can figure it out. I've got this under control. Prayer reminds us because it shapes our hearts in love and trust for the God who is in control of all things in the face of my presumption to think that, that I can handle this or I've got this. Prayer builds hard habits of dependence and it reminds me that I am a creature and not the creator. And we need the discipline of soaking in God's word because it reminds me that I am not as wise as I think. I am not as smart as I pretend to be. I need God's word to instruct my mind, to challenge my will, to convict my desires, to encourage my heart, to direct my steps. Because if it's not being guided by this, then it's just me and the world that's shaping all of it. I need that discipline. The regular patterns of worship, word, and prayer are the foundational disciplines that every follower of Jesus takes on to shape our lives. But then there are other disciplines that we may need to focus on for particular needs or seasons. Peterson pictures them like tools in a tool shed, a shovel, an axe, a hoe, a rake. They do different things to meet different needs. And so in order to know what we need at any given time, that requires wisdom. And some of those disciplines that the church has encouraged Jesus' followers to are, are things like silence and solitude and almsgiving and, and fasting. And the kind of direction that we need to know where and how and when to pull those things out and, and use them, we can get from godly brothers and sisters in Christ. That's part of why we need each other, people who know us well. So, you know, looking at those other disciplines is not the kind of thing that, that you can do in a large group where people are in all different kinds of circumstances and situations and needs. But I do want to suggest a couple of disciplines that might be relevant for most of us based on just what we can observe about the culture around us, the reality of many of our lives, and the temptations that most of us commonly face. Theologian Dallas Willard was asked once to describe Jesus in one word. He chose the word relaxed. That's an interesting choice, but it's also a little convicting too, if you're like me. Because I could use a variety of words to describe myself, and I'm sure you guys could too. We're not going to get into that. But relaxed would probably not be at the top of the list for me. Our culture has trained us to hurry. 
Our culture encourages us to be stressed out and anxious and rushing around. And when we're hurried, we miss opportunities to connect with God and with others. So for those of us who are rushing through life, is it possible to become unhurried and relaxed and calm and fully alive and present in the moment? I think so. I hope so. Because if you notice in the Bible, you never see the Father, you never see Jesus anxious or frantic or hurried or stressed. Maybe slowing down could be a spiritual discipline for us. Maybe, could it help us become more like Jesus who was never hurried or stressed or frantic? What if we held loosely to our to-do lists instead of, you know, making them sort of like a second Bible? And that would give us the freedom to, to listen, to take time to enjoy people's presence, to, the capacity to deepen relationship because when we intentionally discipline our souls to slow down, we're directing our hearts back towards God because we're trusting Him that He's in control and the things that I really need to get done will, will get done and, or, or maybe they won't, but... This person right in front of me, God has brought. And, and that's part of my to-do list too. Do you ever tend to rush through conversation? Guilty. I, I mean, if you think about it, we need space to be able to process what we hear. To be able to reflect on it. Too much going on, be, being too busy means that we struggle really to even process what we're hearing. I mean, that, that's just even a fundamental reality of language, right? We need space between words to even understand what people are saying. And if our lives are too full of noise and busyness and activity and distraction, we won't really be able to go deep and think meaningfully about what we're hearing. And God seems to be more interested in deep than fast. Uh, hold, hold on, I'm just going to, I got some music here that I really like, and you guys talk amongst yourselves. I, you know, this is important right now, and... Um, you know, if, if I'm up here playing music, I've got some really good music that I'm listening to and I'm talking really fast so there's no space between my words, even if there's good music playing and even if there's something really meaningful that I'm saying, it's going to be hard for you to get any good of it because if you hold on, I got to, can you, yeah, hold on just a second, I'm in the middle of something. Do you, you see how all that works? The, the, the hurriedness, the busyness, the, the stress, the multitasking, that means we're not really focusing on anything. All of those things may be good. I asked Brittany to call me. I'll take Brittany's call, but maybe not right now, right? The music that I was listening to is Christian music. The things that I was saying were meaningful, but, but there's so much going on, I'm not getting anything out of it. I'm not able to make sense out of any of it because there's just too much. Man, I, I've just been realizing lately, even when I'm in the shower, when I'm driving around, there's always music on. I'm always thinking about something. I'm always planning the next to-do list. I'm always, you know, looking ahead to the next thing. All of us could benefit from maybe specific dedicated times of silence and solitude, an opportunity to get away and, and just unplug. But that could be a habit that we cultivate in our daily lives. What if we just took five minutes a day to decompress, to slow down, to do nothing but just be quiet and not try to accomplish something productive? We could build in rest 
and, and find quiet to, to fight hurry and distraction. Now, this is, this is really going to challenge some of us. What if we just left five minutes sooner and drove in the slow lane? And I don't have to worry about how fast I'm getting there. I don't have to worry about needing to get around this car. Or I mean, we all have to worry about dodging the potholes, right? I mean, that's stress enough. We got enough with that. So what if I just left extra time to dodge the potholes and not have to rush to get to be where I need to be? What if we just sat and ate slowly, intentionally savoring the, the goodness of what God has provided right in front of us? Or, or maybe there's an item on your to-do list today that you're willing to just let go of. What if we ask God to help us be aware of where we're going too fast and just trying to do too much? Choosing to slow down, to be quiet, to simplify my agenda, my agenda strengthens my trust in God. It reminds me that he's in control and the world is still going to go on. My life is still going to go on. Everything that needs to happen is eventually going to happen because God is the one that's in control of my life, my schedule, my day. And, and then we're more free to see the, the way that God is working and the beauty of what's right around us. And then I could be more present to love God and love the people that are here. One other thing. Our culture is very angry. Our culture is just simmering with resentment and outrage and offense. And we're supposed to be perpetually angry at something anymore. Constantly offended. Constantly outraged. I can't believe they did that. And social media just fuels it. And all of us, I mean, we're already hardwired to believe that our anger is righteous, right? We don't go around thinking like, man, I'm really angry and I'm just stupid for being angry. I mean, we go around thinking, I'm angry and darn it, you should be angry too because that's outrageous. And, and so we're being constantly encouraged to be outraged and to buy into other people's outrage, to be offended with them, to be angry on their behalf, any of you hear about the Lady Doritos fiasco? There was a story in Inc. Magazine. Uh, in an interview, the CEO of Frito-Lay mentioned that Doritos was maybe going to be testing different kinds of chip formulations because the argument goes guys tend to eat differently than women do. You know, we make loud noises and we don't care and, you know, we'll get Dorito dust all over our fingers and lick it off and, you know, we'll shake the crumbs from the bag into our mouths and... And, and the argument was women maybe don't want to do that. What if we designed lady Doritos to, you know, not crunch as loud and not so much of the powder comes off in your fingers and some of you are rolling your eyes in exasperation already, right? Because it sounds ridiculous. How offensive and sexist is that, right? Like I need a special kind of Bic for her pen. Remember those? Another one, right? Some women understandably got upset at that. And wanted other women to be outraged at these sexist assumptions. And, and the funny thing is, the CEO of Frito-Lay is a woman herself. It, I mean, it was her idea. So, look, the issue is not whether or not we should have Lady Doritos or, you know, Bic for her or anything. The point is that there's just all this free-floating outrage. And, and people who think that their anger is righteous want you to join in with them because it feeds their anger and it validates them. And now you're part of the crowd. You get swept up with it in social media, pitchforks and torches. Come on. 
One antidote to anger is gratitude. Have you ever noticed it's really, really hard to be grateful and angry at the same time? In fact, it's almost impossible. How could I discipline myself to to be aware of, you know, falling into self-righteous anger and, and instead cultivate gratitude? Well, one thing would be I could look for the ways that I do the very same or similar things as the thing that I'm outraged about. Not to the same degree, right? I mean, that's where the anger comes in. Well, they did this, and that was horrible. I, you know, I'm much less bad than that. Remember what Paul says in Romans 2? Whenever we condemn someone, whenever we judge someone, we are condemning ourselves because we are guilty of the same thing. Look for the ways that you are tempted to take part in the same kind of outrageous sin that that we're getting angry at other people for falling into. And then pray for the people that you're tempted to be angry at. That's what Jesus kind of tells us to do, isn't it? Bless those who curse you and pray for those who persecute you and love your enemies. Pray for their blessing. Pray for their joy. Pray for them to know love and peace and flourishing. Pray for God to be gracious towards them. That's one of the ways that we start to become grateful instead of angry all the time. Because it's really hard to be angry at someone you're praying for, too, is it? Now, I'm not saying, like, you know, pray like, oh, God, you know, get a hold of them, straighten them out. That's very different. We're saying, God, bless them. God, heal their hearts. Be kind to them. Be gracious to them. That, that jerk that cut me off in traffic, Lord, help him have a good day. Help him get where he needs to go safely and give him more peace, Lord. Bless him, Father. We take on disciplines that will shape us to look more like Jesus. James K.A. Smith is a professor at Calvin College. Our staff and elders have uh, been reading a fantastic book that he's written, You Are What You Love. And that's really true. And that's kind of what Paul's getting at here, isn't it? You are what you love, and what you love shows up in what you do and in how you shape your life. In the book, Smith talks about uh, for many numbers of years, he was overweight and out of shape, and, and he knew that that was not right. He knew that he shouldn't be that kind of a person. He had the belief in his head, but nothing changed until he decided that he wanted to be a different person. And, and he made a commitment to change his habits, to change his lifestyle. He, he engaged in disciplines. He got on Weight Watchers. He you know, he changed his eating habits. He started running, even though he hated it at first, because he knew he needed the discipline. He also needed people around him to encourage him and hold him accountable. Smith says to change, we need a commitment and we need a community. And next week, we're going to talk about why we need Christian community to help us to grow into everything that Jesus invites us to become. But godly friends cannot help us grow in Christ if we don't have the commitment and the desire in our hearts first. It has to start with our wanting more to look like Jesus, wanting more of him. 
And we will only pursue him and only build those habits into our lives when we see that Jesus is better than everything else. Last week, Joey did a great job from Colossians 3 of pulling out what Paul is talking about, that that love is the virtue that holds them all together. And in the same way, I think what Paul is getting at here is that love for Jesus is the supreme discipline. Love for Jesus is the motivation that fuels all the other disciplines and all the habits that we would take on in our lives. The most important habit, the most important discipline that we can build into our lives is treasuring Jesus. Making much of him, valuing him, loving him, thinking on him. Soak in the excellency of Jesus. Fix your eyes on the glory of your king. Bask in the love of your Redeemer. Let the beauty and the goodness of Christ be the vision that shapes the habits that you would take on for your heart and your life. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for uh, an honest and, and a humbling and a convicting and a helpful word from you. Lord, it's a a sobering thing to take an honest look at the habits and the patterns of my life and to really question whether or not they reflect a, a love for you, a love for your gospel, a desire to see other people know you. Jesus, help us. Help us by your spirit who lives in us. Help us by your word as we worship you and cry out to you in prayer that we could take on habits that would grow us more to love you. We do love you, and we pray it all in your name, Jesus. Amen.